If you haven't caught on yet, today is Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. Really, just like we talk about with Resurrection Sunday or Easter Sunday or Christmas Sunday, every Sunday is Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. (laughs) Uh, Every every life is about valuing uh, the life of others. Uh, Every Sunday is about that because God has created life. He's the giver of life, and so we, we rejoice in life. But back in 1984... Uh, Ronald Reagan set January 22nd uh, to be the Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, and that's a very intentional date because it was uh, that same date, January 19 or January 22nd of 1973, that Roe v. Wade was passed, which effectively made abortion on demand legal in all 50 states of the United States. And so Ronald Reagan in 1984 set up this this Sunday, January 22nd. I know we're a few days ahead of that. Uh, typically that third Sunday of the month, uh, very intentionally on that day uh, to kind of counter Roe v. Wade. Uh, So it's our joy and our privilege this morning to focus on that and to think about that. That's what the the songs have been about, the videos have been about, that's what the message will be about this morning. Uh, And so we're excited just to proclaim the gift gift of life that's found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Talking about the gift of life, uh, we uh, are mindful that this past week we've lost a couple of loved ones. Uh, that this past week, uh, Donna, I hope I'm saying her last name right, Conley, uh, passed away on Thursday. Uh, so be praying for her husband, Wally, uh, and also for Sally Fitzpatrick, sister-in-law. Also on Sunday, uh, Pastor Jeff Warden passed away. I've been praying for him for a couple weeks. And so today is the visitation service and, and service for him. So today, Hickory Corners from 2 to 4. Uh, is visitation, and then at 4 o'clock at Hickory Corners is the memorial service for uh, Jeff Warden today. Uh, So be praying about that. If you're able to make it out to that, uh, they do ask that you wear a mask, uh, but just to come and celebrate life uh, and and remember uh, uh, God's God's grace in so many ways. Also, while we're just thinking announcements, uh, keep in mind, members, that in a couple weeks, uh, January What's today, the 17th? So the 31st, the last Sunday of January, immediately following the service, is our members meeting. Uh, And back there, right where we have the box for offerings and the water and and a few other things that are there, you you can grab the proposed budget for 2021. Uh, That's available. Please take that. Please look over that. Uh, If you have questions about that, uh, don't hesitate to contact. Uh, But that's back there for anyone to grab, so you're ready to to vote on that uh, January 31st. Well, that's it for announcements. We're going to go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, we just rejoice in the great freedom of being able to be here this morning and, and worship your name. Freedom given to us by you, the, the freedom to worship. How uh, you set us free from worship of self. You set us free from slavery to sin. Uh, you set us free from these selfish ambitions. You, you've set us free to, to truly worship you, uh, not in a place Uh, but wherever, and focused upon uh, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. We we thank you for your grace in opening our eyes to see and to know and understand that Jesus is the only one. Jesus is the only way, the truth, and the life, that all of our hope is found in him, that the only way of salvation is found in him, that the only way of living a life that brings praise and glory to you, the only way of a blessed life is found in in faith and obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. We, We can't praise you enough. Uh, for opening our eyes to, to that truth, because we know that sin had blinded us and deceived us. Uh, we were dead in our sins, unable to save ourselves, hopeless and helpless, and your, your rich grace uh, by your sovereign spirit and your word uh, to open our eyes in this way, to open our hearts in this way, to open our minds to enlighten us uh, to this revelation uh, that you have done. We, we praise you for it. And Lord, because of it, that rich grace, help us to be people who are also full of grace. Having received such grace, help us to be gracious. Having been so greatly forgiven, help us to be forgiving people. Having been so greatly loved, help us to be loving. Help us to be patient. You were so amazingly patient with us. Help us to be patient with others. Lord, help us to be bearing that fruit of the spirit of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control. Uh, may, may this fruit be abounding more and more in us as we humbly submit ourselves to you and to your word and to your spirit. Help each one of us to be Bible-saturated, hungering and thirsting after your word, not able to get enough of it. 
uh, and by your spirit to be uh, seeking to walk worthy of the truth that is presented within there. And when we fail, when we, when we don't measure up, when we sin, and, and we all do, Lord, help us to be quick to go to you for your grace and your forgiveness. We thank you that if we confess our sins to you, you are faithful and just to cleanse us of all of our unrighteousness. Um, we, we thank you for that truth. Not one of us here this morning is perfect, but we are all looking to you, the perfect one. So Lord, we just pray that you would strengthen us and encourage us this morning. And Lord, as we look at your word to consider just the sanctity of human life and the fact that you've made us in your image and you've, you've given us this great mandate to fill the earth and to subdue it, I pray that you would just do a great work in our hearts. I pray that you'd help each one of us to greatly value life uh, of all stages, of all sizes, of all levels of development, of all levels of dependency, uh, that we would treasure life. I pray that you would help us to, uh, to put that into action, not just to sit here this morning and say amen to that, but to uh, put it into action with our lives, with our words, with our, with our uh, checks, with our cash. Lord, that we would uh, truly, with, with our being, all of our being, be relentlessly pursuing uh, the sanctity of human life in every way that we can, uh, because you have made us in your image. I pray that you do that work in our hearts this morning. And we do lift up to you. Uh, <clears throat> Wally and uh, the rest of the family there with the, the loss of, of <clears throat> Donna there, and we thank you for her trust in you. Uh, we thank you that, and for Brother Jeff Warden too, that they're both more alive now than they ever were as they're in your presence, uh, gazing upon your glory, uh, filled with joy and pleasure forevermore at your right hand. Uh, Lord, we thank you for that. And I pray that, that today at the memorial service for, for Jeff Warden would be uh, just a time of, of great encouragement, of peace and joy that's found in Jesus. We, we pray as the gospel goes forth uh, that, that many would hear that and come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, that they would recognize their sin and believe upon you, that you would be pleased to do that, Father. And we just pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> well, if you would, please turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. We're looking at the sixth day of creation. Uh, Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. And really, we're just looking at half or part of the sixth day of creation, because also on the sixth day, he creates uh, all the animals upon the earth. Uh, but here we're looking in particular when he creates man. <clears throat> so Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28, and God's word says this. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is the reading of God's good, perfect word. All God's people say, Amen. So again, this morning is Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. That's why we're looking at Genesis 1, 26 through 28. We're going to look at that foundation. But I do want to just clear the air a little bit this, this morning as, as we think about this and, and allow the Holy Spirit to work in our hearts that uh, in case you think we're trying to be political this morning, we're not. This, this is a biblical issue. Before it's political, or whatever else, it's biblical. This is a theological issue. God has clearly spoken on this, and so this morning we are opening the word of God and we're seeing what God's word has to say about life. And anything else that's out there uh, is secondary to this. That this is our worldview. 
And this is what frames our thinking, and this is by which we seek to, to filter things through and, and, and understand things. Uh, so uh, that's, that's what we're doing this morning. We're not trying to have a social issue or a political issue. We are, we are dealing, quite frankly, with a unique and focused evil in which Satan has deeply vested interests. And we cannot afford to, to simply look away or sweep this issue under the, under the carpets. Uh, what, what we're talking about this morning goes to the very core of what it means to be a human being, of what it means to be made in his image. So how we, how we treat the unborn, how we treat the weak, the poor, the elderly, those who can't defend themselves, that's a reflection of what we believe about God. And it's a reflection of what we believe about one another. And the big point uh, that I want to bring across this morning is that we should be, we should be, we must be relentless, relentless in our love and protection of human life. We live in a culture of death. We live in a culture that celebrates death in a lot of ways and hatred. I'm not sure why it is, but some of us are afraid to offend the culture that we live in. And I think, in light of the fact that we live in such a culture of death, that you and I should be relentless about pursuing a culture of life, relentless in our pursuit of the sanctity of human life, relentless regardless of what others say or think or do, because we're persuaded that we are made in the image of God. And we're persuaded that we are under the cultural mandate. And so this morning, that, that's my aim. That's, that's, that's where I'm seeking to persuade and push towards with the Lord's help, is that each one of us will leave here resolved to be relentless, uh, to protect human life, to love human life. And we're arguing this from Genesis 1. Genesis 1 introduces us to the one true God and his creation. It reveals an awesome God who is sovereign over his creation, but is, is not floating up there and uninvolved. He's not deistic. He, he isn't intricately involved in his creation. And so Genesis 1 gives us this beautiful account of, of his creative work and how he creates the heavens and the earth and all that's in it. In six days, on the seventh day, he rests. And for the first three days, he forms the world. And then four, five, and six, days four, five, and six, he, he fills the world with all these different wonderful varieties of, of creatures. And then on that seventh day, he rests. And again, we're looking at day six, uh, found in Genesis 1, 26 and following. Uh, that is what I believe to be the most important of all those days. Uh, and these are some of what I think also to be the most important verses in the Bible. These are verses we should be very, very familiar with, ready to discuss and explain at a moment's notice. As we make our way through the text this morning, we're going to see three things. We're going to see first the divine plan. Then after that, we're going to see the divine pattern. And after that, we'll see the divine purpose. And if you have your bulletin, that outline is, is in the bulletin there for you. But the divine plan, verse 26 says, Then God said, Let us make man. Let us make man. And of course, the question that always comes up is, who is the us? And sometimes you'll encounter people who will try and persuade you that the Bible doesn't anywhere teach the doctrine of the Trinity, but you can see right here this in seed form or germ form, the Trinity being taught in Genesis 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man. And then further after that, it says, after our likeness. So here we have the Trinity. Here we have uh, Trinitarian fellowship. Here we have Trinitarian communion. A trin Trinitarian consultation uh, among the persons of the Godhead prior to the creation of Adam and Eve. And there's something very precious about this thought, uh, that God stops and slows down. In fact, it breaks the pattern. If you read through Genesis 1, there's a very distinct pattern. But then 26, you, it breaks the pattern to try and get us to stop and focus on the text. They hear God did not make us at random. But here we see, let us make man. You see very careful and thoughtful deliberation to the creation of humanity. We, hear, we see here quite, quite frankly, quite, quite clearly that we are not the result of random processes. 
unlike Carl Sagan, if you've heard of him before, one of his more famous sayings is where he says basically that the universe is nothing and you and I are nothing. In contrary to that, the scriptures say that's not even close to being true, that we are the result of careful, thoughtful, divine consultation and thought and care and love. Uh, Kent Hughes puts it this way uh, quite eloquently. He writes, though you could travel a hundred times the speed of light, past countless yellow orange stars, to the edge of the galaxy and swoop down to the fiery glow located a few hundred light years below the plane of the Milky Way, though you could slow to examine the host of hot young stars luminous among the gas and dust, though you could observe close up the protostars poised to burst forth from their dusty cocoons, Though you could witness a star's birth, in all your stellar journeys, you would never see anything equal to the birth and wonder of a human being. For a tiny baby girl or boy is the apex of God's creation. <clears throat> in Psalm chapter 8, verse 5, speaking about creation, it says that, that we, humanity, are crowned with glory and honor. In Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, we read this. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. That's God the Father speaking to the prophet Jeremiah. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Does that sound random? Does that sound thoughtless or careless? Does that sound like we're nothing? Is anything but that? In fact, sometimes we get that question, when does life begin? Life begins in God's mind. That's where life begins. Because here he says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And of course, Psalm 139, uh, referenced in, in the song that was sang this morning, if you want to turn there, uh, Psalm 139. I wish, wish we had time to kind of look at that whole chapter, but just verses 13 through 16 if you turn there, please, Psalm 139, verses 13 through 16. Keep, keep your fingers back in, in Genesis. But Psalm 139, verses 13 and 16, and here King David uh, is rejoicing over God's intricate design of every one of us. <clears throat> so in Psalm 139, verse 13, it says this, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Verse 16, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. And I tried to emphasize it as I read it through. We see how many times this talks about you, how, how many times he, he lifts his eyes up to God. You for my inward parts. You knitted me together. I praise you. Uh, my frame was not hidden from you. God is, God is very intimately involved uh, this, this is a wonderful exposition of how God uh, is involved, this providential involvement in our lives, in our prenatal development. It's an amazing passage. And just think again about where it says in, in verse 13 that he has knitted me together. You knitted me together. Now, I've never knitted anything in my entire life. <clears throat> I have no plan on knitting anything ever in my entire life. Uh, but I, I, I think it's fair to say when we think about knitting that if you're going to knit something, you have to have a plan, right? You need to kind of have in your mind's eye what you're going to make. And I don't know what people knit. What do they knit? Scarves? Because people knit scarves, right? Hats, the, the socks. Uh, so you have to have that in your mind. I think if you're going to knit something with color, you kind of have to know if you have that color yarn and where to find it. Uh, but you can just think through that process of knitting. It's not careless. It's not random. It's not thoughtless. It's very carefully thought through. There's a plan. There's a pattern. Uh, and then comes the, just the, the intricate work of, of doing that. Lots of preparation and, and hard work in that. And so we see that, just connecting that back to Genesis 1.26, where it says, let us make man. Uh, we see that, that the creation of us is not thoughtless. It's a divine plan. And so we can say with great joy uh, that, that you are not a, a random clump of cells, 
right? It's often what's get, what's get said about uh, the, the infant in the mother's womb. You are not blobs of, of protoplasm, or like the, the lady said in the video, I think, you're not just a bunch of body parts. You and I are fearfully and wonderfully made by the careful, loving, thoughtful deliberation of God Almighty. Let me say it this way, there is no such thing as an unplanned pregnancy. Amen? There's no such thing. There are no accidents or coincidences. Life is not meaningless. God is the creator and giver of life. With that in mind, think about these statistics from the Guttmacher Institute, which is the statistical right-hand arm of planned parenthood. Every four years, uh, they put out new statistics. They're able to survey all 50 states. Uh, So back in 2017, their statistics said this, that 25% of those who have abortions have them because they say they're not ready. Because they say the timing is wrong. Another 23% believe they can't afford the baby. 8% are fearful of being a sing- single mother. And 7% don't believe they're mature enough. Now think of that and come to God's word. And, and God's word is saying, don't believe that any of that for a second. And, and, and God's word is saying that God has made you able to take care of your baby. No matter the doubts, the questions, the fears that you might have, that God in his wisdom has given mothers incredible power, and you you can take care of the baby growing in you. God has gifted you with the ability you need to love them and care for them. Trust God and his sovereignty in allowing this life to be knit together in your womb. Trust God that he has a plan for that child. Otherwise, he would not have allowed that pregnancy to occur. God has a divine plan. And with that plan, he has a divine pattern. Uh, Verse 26 goes on to say, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Those those are parallel expressions, in our image, in our likeness. Then verse 27 again, God created man in his own image. In, In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. That's, by the way, the first time we see poetry in the Bible. Verse 27. And maybe your Bible kind of sets it up that way so you can see that it's poetry. And again, why does Scripture do that? Why did the Holy Spirit have Moses write poetically here? I think it's to slow you down and to think and to focus on the importance of what God is doing here. And what we're seeing is that mankind was created in the likeness of God. Theologians refer to this as the Imago Dei. If you want to turn to each other and say, you have the Imago Dei. Doesn't that sound romantic somehow? (laughs) You have that Imago Dei. It almost sounds like a a cologne or a perfume or something, right? The Imago Dei. What is the the Imago Dei? What's the significance of that? What's what's the importance of that? And in your bulletin, you'll see a number of things that we can bring out from that. But the first one is is this. What's the significance of the Imago Dei? It means we're distinct from the animal creation. It means that Surprise, surprise, you and I, we're not animals. We're not. We're distinct from creation. We're distinct from the animals. Look at verses 24 and 25. In 24 and 25, it says, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. Five times, Scripture says in the space of two verses, that animals were created according to their kinds. And then you come to verses 26 and 27, and five times we're told the exact opposite, that we're not created according to our kind, we are created after the image of God. It's a stark contrast to bring out that man is unique, that we did not evolve from animals... Animals are not people. People are not animals. Animals are not made in the image of God. That is a distinct privilege given uh, to human beings. Secondly, we see from this that all mankind is endowed with the capacity to rule. What's God doing all through Genesis 1? He's ruling, right? 
He has dominion. He has power. What he says goes, and it, it happens. He's exercising that authority. And immediately after reading all that in Genesis 1, we're, we're told uh, that we're made in God's image. And verse 26 goes on to say, let them have what? Dominion. Or your translation might say, let them rule. So very, very clearly bound up in the idea of being made in God's images is you are given God-given authority to rule, to have, a, to have dominion over this earth. That's, that's nothing short of amazing. Uh, kings would regularly set up statues of themselves throughout the land to show their sovereignty, and so God has established us as his representatives to, to show his sovereignty. We're, we're his viceroys or his vassals. We're, we're rulers under his authority and kingship. It's, it's really quite amazing. The third thing is this. It means that the image of God means we are made to resemble God. That's something to think about, isn't it? We're made to resemble God. Not, not physically, God is spirit. We are to resemble his attributes. So for example, it's clear from Genesis 1 that God is rational. He forms and executes plans, and so with us. It's clear from Genesis 1 that God is moral. As you read through Genesis 1, he repeatedly says his creation is good. In fact, he says it's very good at the end of chapter 1. So with us, we have this built-in moral code, an inherent sense of right and wrong. It's very easy to prove that we have this inherent sense of, of right and wrong. And I can just simply ask the question, do, do you like it when your things are stolen? What do we say when the things are stolen? That's just not right. We have this inherent sense of right and wrong. Uh, looking in Genesis 1, we see a God who loves beauty and designs and forms and fashions things, and, and so with us. Of course, we don't create things out of nothing. That's, that's something God himself can do. But we like to fashion things and create things. Uh, for, for me personally, there's, there's few things more satisfying than making something with my own hands. And I think that's true of, of all of us in one degree or another because we're made in God's image. God fashions and designs and takes joy in that, and, and so do we. We, we compose symphonies. Or uh, Dave Stout and Josiah, the song that they just did, they composed that song, right? There's great joy in that. Uh, we build houses, we, we paint paintings, and we do these things. We're reflecting God. That's part of what it means to be made in his image. We're resembling him. Also, we see that God enjoys fellowship. Uh, again, let us make man uh, so with us, we, we are made to belong. We crave fellowship. We want to belong. But even as I go through that with that list, we can all sense that we don't quite measure up to that. We can all uh, sense that uh, we're not the image that God has made us to be. And if we're being honest with the Spirit working in our hearts, we have to acknowledge that every single one of us fall very short of the image of God. Very short. And we know this because of Genesis 3. In Genesis 3, a sin enters the world, humanity falls, and an ugly black streak of sin has streaked across the image of God in every one of us. Sure, we can still think, we still have make plans, we're still rational, but our plans are now often very selfish. We can for sure still have a sense of right and wrong, uh, but even though we know what's right and wrong, we don't always do it. In fact, scriptures say no one is righteous, not even one. We can still communicate. We just don't communicate with truth and beauty all the time. Sometimes we communicate with lust and hate. The image of God is still within us, but it's been marred, sometimes almost beyond recognition. L listen, th this is the danger of sin. That, that every time you sin, the more you sin, the less you reflect his image. Sin quite literally dehumanizes you. You are made to reflect him, to resemble him, to glorify him. And when you don't do that, when you sin against that, you become less and less of what he has made you to be. You can think of it this way. You, you can imagine in your mind a nice, crisp, $100 bill from the bank. <clears throat> that $100 bill represents Adam and Eve in the garden 
as they come from the hand of God, created with no sin, perfectly resembling and reflecting the image of God. Now, what do we do with a $100 bill? Take that $100 bill and crumple it. Take the $100 bill, maybe make a few rips in it, and step on it, smear a bunch of mud and dirt on it. That's the image of God corrupted by sin. That's, that's what sin does to Adam. That's what it does to us. We're still in God's image, but sin so corrupts us and so deforms us that it's nearly impossible to tell we are made in God's image. So what do we need? We need transformation. We need recreation. And that's exactly what Jesus brings. The scriptures say in Colossians 1.15 that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. That we were made in God's image, but sin has corrupted that image. And here comes God the Son, Jesus, who is the perfect heavenly image of God. He is what we cannot be. He does for us what we cannot do. And so by faith in Jesus, he forgives us, he cleanses us, he begins to restore us. So now we take that $100 bill that, that, that was crumpled up and ripped and torn, has dirt all over it, we, we now start to try and uncrumple that. <laughs> to, is that a word, uncrumple? To, to take that $100 bill and, and to, to fold it out and get all the creases out of it, maybe repair the, the rips somehow, smooth the edges out, clean off the dirt. That's, that's what Jesus does. That's, that's the work of the Holy Spirit in sanctification. Now in this lifetime, we'll, we'll never have that perfectly crisp bill. We'll never be perfect in this lifetime. Uh, we'll always be somewhat crumpled and dirty. But when Christ returns, he will completely restore us in the image of his son. That's our savior. That's our king. And the temptation that we have, some of us have, is to think, well, Jesus could never do that for me. Sometimes we, we're so caught up into sin, we think I've sinned too much, I'm too dirty, I'm too, I'm too crumpled up. You ever feel that way or think that way or know someone who feels that way? Maybe you feel that way right now. I'm too crumpled up, I'm too sinful. God could do nothing with me. But hold a second, Genesis 1, Jesus is the creator. Jesus is able to create ex nihilo. Out of nothing, he creates life and goodness. If he can do that with creation, he can do that with you. He can give you a new heart with new desires and new passions and new longings. He can recreate you into his image, and he will if you will turn from your sin and believe in him. He can restore God's image to your sinful life. He's also the one, as you read through Genesis 1, who filled the world with light and water and fish and birds and animals and, and everything that, that creeps. I, I don't know what it is. I love that verse. Every creeping thing that creeps, as the KJV would, would say it. So maybe right now, you feel empty. You're looking for hope and peace. You know you're unrighteous. You know sin has tainted you and, and, and wrecked you and destroyed you. Just as Jesus filled the world with all those wonderful things, he can fill your life with his peace and his hope and his righteousness, with his forgiveness. He can and he will if you will believe upon him. He will restore God's image in you. He will make you a new creation. He will take that sin that dehumanizes you and destroys you, and he will crush it. He will kill it. That's our Savior. That's our King. Well, the next thing that it means to be made in God's image is, is that it means everyone in here is a person. And this is super important that we catch this, that we are persons. What do we, what do we mean by persons? We mean that you're able to have affections and emotions and feelings we mean that you're able to communicate with others. We mean that you are involved in relationships and you're capable of fellowship, that you know what it means to dream. Kind of like that video that we watched of the girl saying, can you see me? And trying to portray what her life will be like. The dreams that she has, we all have those dreams. And the scriptures would teach that from the moment of conception, a human being is a person. Every human being is a person from the moment of conception. That is unbelievably important. Do you understand that at the heart of the abortion debate is this right here, whether that baby growing in the womb is a person or not? That's the heart of the debate. Every honest abortionist will say to you, we know that abortion is the taking of a life. 
They will all say that if they're being honest. What they will argue with you is if that's a life worth living, whether that life is a person. And they will argue that it is not a person and therefore it's a life that we're able to take. That's the argument of abortion today. Let me just share with you a few people who say that very loudly and clearly. Uh, For example, during his UNC Wilmington debate with pro-life professor Mike Adams, abortionist Willie Parker admitted under cross-examination that he intentionally kills human beings. When pro-life professor Adams pressed him to justify his actions of killing human beings, uh, the abortionist Parker accused Adams of failing to distinguish, quote, human beings from human persons. And that's no isolated incident. In her book, Love Thy Body, Nancy Piercy quotes bioethicist Daniel Callahan of the Hastings Institute, who insists that once a patient loses, quote, the capacity to reason, to have emotions, and to enter into relationships, that person cannot be any longer called a person. It's a mere body only. So note the logic. If this applies to a baby in the womb, it applies to the elderly. John Harris from the University of Manchester says this, quote, nine months of development leaves the human embryo far short of the emergence of anything that can be called a person. A person for Harris is a creature capable of valuing its own existence. It is therefore not wrong, this is him, that is therefore not wrong to kill non-persons or fail to save their lives. Quote, death does not deprive them of anything they value, end quote. That's wicked. Anne Ferretti, the chief executive of the largest independent abortion provider in the United Kingdom, said this in a 2008 debate. We can accept that the embryo is a living thing in the fact that it has a beating heart. It has its own genetic system within it. It's clearly human in the sense it's not a gerbil. And we can recognize that it is human life. Notice what she says. The point is not when does human life begin, but when does it begin to matter? Peter Singer. I don't know if you've heard of him before. I follow him very closely. He's ranked as one of the top 100 influential people in the world. He's a professor at Princeton of bioethics. He is transforming and influencing the minds of future leaders in this world. He's been at it for a long time. Peter Singer, quote, human babies are not self-aware or capable of grasping that they exist over time. They are not persons. He's a big animal rights activist, so he says this, animals are self-aware and therefore, quote, the life of a newborn is of less value than the life of a pig, a dog, or a chimpanzee. That is wicked. I hope you see what they're doing. They want to define human personhood not by being, but by function. And so this is the importance of the Imago Dei and affirming that personhood is not defined by functionality. It is not defined by what someone can do or not do. It's not earned, it's given, it's inherent, it's conferred by God himself. And thus human beings, born or unborn, have inestimable value and worth because they're created and fearfully and wonderfully made by God. All lives matter. From embryos to newborn to middle-aged to senior citizens, whether healthy or sick, all people are made in God's image. All people have dignity and worth. Consider then the horror and wickedness of abortion. Babies, unborn or born, are persons made in God's image. That's what our text says. Persons fearfully and wonderfully made by God to reflect his glory. And we have been given dominion. We have been given God's authority to rule this world with his love, with his wisdom, with his justice and his mercy. And what have we done with that dominion? What have we done with that authority, that God-given power to rule? Well, since 1973, we've crushed 
killed, poisoned, decapitated, vacuumed, scraped out of the mother's womb over 60 million unborn babies. That's what we've done with it. There's a pamphlet from Right to Life Michigan uh, from last year that noted, again, quoting from Guttmacher, uh, that in 2017, there were more abortions than deaths due to heart disease or cancer in the United States. It also noted that there are more abortions performed every year in America. Again, hear this. There are more abortions performed every year in America than combat deaths in all of our wars from 1775 to 2020. Every year. Observing a 15-second moment of silence for each child killed by abortion would take 28 years. 28 years. Adding insult to injury, Michigan and several other states banned elective medical procedures during the COVID shutdown, but hey, abortion, that's essential. It's wicked. That's wicked. Instead of grieving over the evil of abortion, lots of people rejoice over it. On January 22nd, 2019, again, note note that date. January 22nd, 1973, Roe v. Wade makes abortion legal in all 50 states. 1984, January 22, Sanctity of Human Life by Ronald Reagan. January 22nd, 2019, uh, Governor Cuomo, uh, New York State, uh, Democratic governor, signed into law the so-called RHA, the Reproductive Health Act, Remember that? That's about as wicked as it gets. The Reproductive Health Act, or the RHA, effectively legalized abortion up to birth and beyond. So now, even if the targeted infant miraculously escapes, like those, that video we watched, miraculously escapes the powerful suction of the abortionist vacuum, or his forceps, the baby can be denied life-saving medical treatment and just simply left there to die until it dies. So this Thursday, I forced myself to watch, and and you can do it too if you really want to. Uh, Just Google it. Governor Cuomo, RHA, Reproductive Health Care Act. It's a 22-minute long video on YouTube where you have Governor Cuomo and a number of legislators and supporters of abortion who are gleeful. They're like jumping up and down like, happy and rejoicing and slapping each other on the back and super happy, these big grins on their face, that they are signing into law this death warrant. It's sick. It made me sick to my stomach. God help us, the unthinkable has become not just tolerable and not just acceptable, but applaudable. They're applauding it. This is an affront to the Imago Dei and to God himself. When abortion occurs and involves not only the murder of an unborn child, but also the termination of God's work in the womb. Hear this, abortion is not a woman's right. It is not a personal decision. It is not health care. It is not family planning. It is murder. Abortion is murder. It is an attack against the Imago Dei. It is quite literally ripping and decapitating and poisoning and crushing and destroying the image of God. We have lost our way. Sin has dehumanized us. We are sinful sinners who need to be redeemed. And how rich is God's grace that even something as wicked as abortion, this sort of murder, is a sin for which Jesus died. It's a sin which Jesus will forgive through faith in him. Jesus did not die for perfect people or even good people. Praise the Lord for that. None of us would ever be saved or have a chance at it. Jesus died to bear God's wrath for imperfect people, including murderers. And if you will confess your sin and put your faith in Jesus, your sin can be forgiven. You can be redeemed. You can be transformed. And as those transformed, remade into the image of God, we have a purpose. God has a plan. He's made us in his image. He's given us a purpose. Verse 28 goes on to say, God blessed them. 
And God said to them, he gives two commands. Be fruitful and multiply, that's, that's the first command. The second one, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So when it says, be fruitful and multiply, that's pretty straightforward. God is saying, start a family, have some babies. That's what he's saying there. He gives that command again in Genesis 9. That's not all we're supposed to do. We're all supposed to fill the earth and subdue it. And what that requires is not only bearing children, but seeking to, striving to raise our children in the things of the Lord so they will properly subdue the earth until God returns. If we produce ungodly children, if we make no effort to raise them in the things of the world, we're filling the earth, but we are not properly subduing it. So the sanctity of human life, where does it begin? At home. It begins at home. It begins with your family. It begins with choosing not to kill them. It begins with choosing to see children as a gift from God. Choosing even to adopt and foster children. And then striving to raise them in the things of the Lord. It's imperative we sanctify life this way. Listen, without a God-centered family, churches and ultimately society will fall apart. Just like our society is today, it's falling apart. George Scipione writes this, quote, The family contains the church in embryo. Godly families produce stable, growing churches. Unstable families produce ungodly churches that often split. You will be a blessing to your church if you make your family and its worship a top priority after your relationship with God and your spouse. Then he says, because the church is God's salt and light in the world, to preserve the culture, you must preserve the church. And to preserve the church, you need godly families. Where does sanctity of human life begin? In your family, in your home. The more God-centered and biblical family life is, the stronger the church will be and the greater the culture will be subdued uh, to the glory of God's name. <clears throat> so Galatians, or Genesis 1.28, this is why it gets called the cultural mandate. The cultural mandate. Everything in creation has been ruined by sin, but everything in creation is to be developed and ultimately rendered to our great God in heaven for his glory. So I'm going to say it this way. We shouldn't have to look to the unbeliever for science. We should have believing scientists setting the standard for science. The same is true of every other cultural aspect you can think of. Science, philosophy, arts, literature, each one of those areas should be saturated with Christians because Christians alone have the understanding of the one true God of creation. There wouldn't be any science unless God created the earth, right? Apart from God, there's nothing for science to study. The same is true of philosophy, the arts, politics. Apart from God's creative work, those things don't exist. So, so I hope you're kind of catching the vision with that. Without, without minimizing the wickedness of abortion, I'm trying to help us see the sanctity of human life is so much bigger than what just happens in the womb. What happens after they are born is very important also. We must raise our children to be godly, to be biblical, to have godly worldviews, to raise our children to set their heights on nothing less than the glory of God, whatever career or path or profession they take. We must teach them to use their gifts and talents and minds and abilities for God and teach them to value life at all ages and stages. Raise them to understand that if they grow up to be a businessman or a businesswoman, they should be the best in their business to the glory of God. And raise them to understand if they're a scientist, you should be the best at it to the glory of God. If you're an artist or whatever it is, you should be the best at it to the glory of God. Christianity should be producing disciples who excel first and foremost in biblical truth and out of that understanding of Scripture become the best nurses, the best doctors, the best lawyers, the best judges, dare I say, the best politicians, uh, the best soldiers this world has ever seen because they know God and they know his creation, they know the mandate. That gets me excited. I hope that gets you excited. I hope you're seeing the richness of this. I hope you view work like that. When you go to work, seeing it as a place to continue the Imago Dei, to continue God's creative work, to express his image, to bring the cultural mandate to bear. Do you think of work that way? 
You know, there was a time when theology was called the queen of sciences. Man, we've come a long ways, in a bad way. Now it's totally subjugated to nothing. You can have your Christianity and your theology and, and put that in a little bubble over here. But we're going to do everything we want to do here. But you keep that over here. It used to be understood that Christianity was the basis for life, for art, for science, for industry, for everything, but now it's been relegated to the world of irrelevance. It's sad that we have turned so many of these things over to the unbeliever. We are not subduing the earth in this way. We have abandoned our God-given mandate. Christian, God has made you vice-regent over his earth that you might fill and multiply and subdue the earth, that you might grow godly families, create godly culture, build a godly civilization, reflecting his holy and loving care all throughout the world in every sphere down to the unborn. That's the heartbeat, the biblical worldview of sanctity of human life. So let us as a church do our part with God's help to subdue our corner of the kingdom, Barry County. Let's train up and equip disciples of Christ whose roots go deep into God's word and out of that grow godly families and out of that grow individuals who become the best in their field of expertise and who fight against sin and evil and the forces that distort God's creation mandate. This is why I've been emphasizing from day one the need to love our community. That is the cultural mandate that has been put upon us from Scripture. 1 John 3.18 says, Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. Proverbs 24.11 says, Rescue those being led away to death. Hold back those staggering towards slaughter. This is why I love that we as a church offer biblical counseling that offers Christ-like care and compassion to any who are hurting and looking for hope. We're trying to subdue the earth. We're trying to show that God's word, not psychology, has solutions to everyday life. This is why I love that we have a food pantry and a food box route. This is why I love that we've started a baby pantry. That, that starting this week through family promise, I love, I love the providence of God and how that works out. Today's sanctity of human life and, and family promise. We have this week uh, to love and serve the homeless in our community. That ties right into this, right? That's the cultural mandate, subdue and fill the earth. 